Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Paris. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Paris guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Paris answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Eiffel Tower, how to use the metro, where to find an absolutely beautiful brasserie right now in any neighborhood. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, we will be taking you on a whirlwind tour of art and inspiration in Paris, district by district. There are a lot of galleries, museums, art venues, performances, beautiful places, famous artists and other cool things. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in this episode in the Circa app as well as all the other full guide episodes to this wonderful city. So if you want to experience the best of the Paris art scene, you're in the right place. Put on something stylish and pack your sketchbook. Let's go to the artist city. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Impressionism, Cubism, Symbolism, Art Nouveau, Art Deco, Cabaret. All of these artistic movements changed the world and all of them were born right here in the Atelier of Paris. In fact, over the course of the Parisian Belle Époque, Golden Age, this city along the Seine more or less invented modern art as we know it today. Then and ever since, artists from around the world have been drawn to Paris. And not just for its great museums and world-famous art schools. It's something about the city itself. The glitter of the Seine River, the reed-like elegance of the painted green lamppost, the plain trees and the exquisite city parks. It's enough to inspire the hardest of hearts and the most rational of brains. Oh, and the light. There's nothing quite like the beaming light of the first spring days in Paris. Paris is a place where artists are valued and revered. An example? Artists get special benefits from the state, like tax breaks, and access to some of the best apartments in the city. Much of this is thanks to the measures brought in by France's first culture minister, André Malraux, a famous writer who fought with the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War and later in the French Resistance before getting appointed into Charles de Gaulle's government in the 1960s. Malraux brought in a raft of measures to support art and creativity in France, 
bolstered by his lifelong belief that culture was a key part of living meaningfully for individuals and for whole societies. He invested huge amounts into libraries, theaters, and art galleries. He built cultural centers and cleaned the facades of the Parisian sandstone buildings so that their dormant beauty could be revealed once more. For Malraux, culture was not frivolous, it was vital. He said, Culture is the legacy of the nobility of the world, the only power we have in the face of the element of darkness. It's precisely the only force inside of us capable of escaping death. And it's true, I think, that the culture we have here has the power to make you feel extra alive. You will feel this as you wander through the poetic cobble streets of Montmartre or the jaw-dropping splendor of the Musée d'Orsay. And it's not just about the art that hangs in the legendary museums. In Paris, you'll experience a city splashed with all kinds of artistic expression. From musical spectacles to classic opera to contemporary dance, in France, l'art du spectacle holds a special place in society and audiences have super high expectations. There are amazing circus arts and magic performances and, of course, Paris is still pretty hard to beat when it comes to cabaret and mime. Oh, and there's also an awesome photography scene, jaw-dropping street art, street dance, and on, and on, and on. In Paris, you can see art just about everywhere, like the painters of Montmartre or the bright street murals that line the canal in the east of the city. Here, it's hard to not be artistically inspired. Just ask the adopted Parisians of history. Vincent Van Gogh, Marc Chagall, Pablo Picasso, Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, Josephine Baker, and now, well, you. Once you're done listening to this episode, if we have done our job right, I want to inspire you to have your own artistic relationship with the city to dive in and flex a little creative muscle too, if you feel so inspired. The French capital has some of the world's most famous art museums, some so famous I hardly need to name them. But let's put them on your radar anyway. We're going to visit the Louvre and the Orsay, which should of course be on your bucket list. And I also want to show you some other beautiful less obvious places, the big stars and the hidden gems and the young blood. I want to show you how this city lives and breathes art and beauty. I want to prove to you that in Paris, creative expression is everywhere and that it takes many different forms. So here's the plan. We're going to visit every single district or arrondissement in Paris, all 20 of them. This is why I told you to wear comfortable clothes and shoes. Then, I'm going to show you something wonderful and captivating in each and every one of them. And well, there is only one obvious place to start. C'est parti! The Louvre 
Like Cole Porter wrote when he had to find a metaphor to express that something was the absolute best in the world, let's start with the big one, the biggest one in fact, the most visited museum in the entire world. A title it retained even during the COVID-19 pandemic. This world-famous monument displays more than 30,000 artworks, sculptures and precious relics spanning prehistory to the present day. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the museum's whole collection. Bienvenue au Louvre. Let's start in the main courtyard, the Cour Napoléon, where each wing of this dazzling Renaissance palace encloses the monumental glass pyramids designed by Chinese-American architect E.M. Pei. The pyramids were added in the 1980s on the request of France's longest-serving president, François Mitterrand. The pyramid and the underground lobby, for which it acts as an atrium, were dreamed up to reduce visitor queues. Now this feature has made the museum even more visually dazzling. The central pyramid sits along the route, which would have once been the king's hunting path to the Bois de Boulogne in the west. Nobody knows exactly where the name Louvre comes from, but it sounds quite a lot like Louvre, the French word for a female wolf. Some theories hint that it was the hunting route that informed the naming. The obelisk on Place de la Concorde is a true Egyptian relic and the oldest artifact in Paris. Then, the Champs-Élysées, Arc de Triomphe and the more modern La Défense arch out in the business district, which was also added in the 1980s. It is widely understood that Mitterrand had an affair with Italian-Egyptian singer Dalida, a huge pop star in France throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. All-time Parisians will tell you that he commissioned the Louvre pyramids as an extremely grand but secret tribute to his lover. The construction of the Louvre Palace began under the reign of another iconic French leader named François. Over four centuries ago, King François I. It's perched right on top of the site of a medieval fort, built to keep the English from invading Paris through Normandy in the west. Keep your eyes open for remnants of this fortress in the underground level inside the museum. Only a small part of the Louvre was completed during François' reign, the southwestern part of what is today known as the Square Courtyard. This lover of the art set the tone for the style and artistic inclinations of the building. François I was an athlete standing just shy of six foot six tall and a huge patron of the arts and notably sponsored Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci, in turn, gifted the king a modestly sized portrait of a woman, La Joconde, or as we like to call her in English, the Mona Lisa. He kept her at his palace in the woods of Fontainebleau to the south of Paris. You can still visit the chateau, by the way. 
It's about an hour away from the center of Paris by train, and the area is well worth a day trip with its beautiful forest and charming artistic towns like Barbizon. Loved by painters including Camille Corot and Théodore Rousseau. Now, back to that elusive Mona Lisa. Nat King Cole sang about her. Andy Warhol parodied her and Beyoncé and Jay-Z shot a music video with her. There is no denying that this mysterious woman with an enigmatic smile is incredibly famous. Today, you will find her in the Dinan wing of the palace on the Seine riverside, in a vast room called La Salle des Etats, where she has lived since the mid-1960s. She is kept in a bulletproof glass cabinet not only to protect her from adoring fans, but also because the poplar wood she is painted on will warp if it is not temperature controlled. An estimated 30,000 or so visitors come to see the famous painting every day. Yes, the real tableau is small, and yes, you may have to wait to get to the front. But it is a must, really. You wouldn't want to leave without at least saying cuckoo to her, would you? My advice is to plan your visit to the Louvre on a weekday, when there won't be quite so many visitors. Book your ticket before, and if you can, book for opening time, 9 a.m., when the crowds are lightest. And while we are on the subject, just what is it that makes Mona Lisa so famous and alluring? It's a combination of factors. The painter, Leonardo da Vinci, is of course a superstar himself. The wildly productive and multi-talented Renaissance man, par excellence, found renewed acclaim in the 19th century for his scientific and technological inventions. His oeuvre continues to inspire, even in the 21st century. Add to that the quality of the painting itself. It's a masterly example of the sfumato technique, the sort of hazy, smoky effect it has due to layers of glazes, which gives it its famous dynamic quality, where you will feel the sitter is following you with her eyes. Then, of course, there's the playful half-smile, an enigmatic expression that has allowed critics over the ages to project their fantasies onto Mona Lisa. The portrait's fame was locked in in 1911 when it was stolen from the Louvre. The news was splashed across world media and huge rewards were offered for her safe return. But for a whole two years, this priceless painting was nowhere to be found. That is, until Vicenzo Perugia, a glazer who had been working at the museum at the time of theft, tried selling the Renaissance masterpiece back in his native Italy to a gallery in Florence. He had thought that the buyer in question would appreciate him bringing the painting home after it was stolen by Napoleon. That is arguably true of many works in the Louvre, but not this one, which was gifted by the artist himself long before Bonaparte was born. Under police questioning, Perugia revealed how he'd pulled off the steel of the century. 
He arrived early for his shift, waited for the salle carré where the painting was then hung, to be empty and simply lifted it off its metal pegs before taking it to a nearby service staircase in the museum. He removed its frame and protective casing and then wrapped it in his white worker's smock, put it under his arm and strolled back out of the staff exit. The painting stayed hidden in a trunk in his small Parisian apartment for two years. In the end, the court took kindly to his patriotism and he was sentenced to only one year and 15 days in prison, which was reduced to only seven months. We'll link you to some more wonders that are well worth seeing in the Denon Wing in the show notes. It was France's last king before the revolution, Louis XVI, who first suggested the idea of turning the huge palace into a national museum. It didn't go exactly as he might have planned. When he was arrested and executed in 1792, the Royal Art Collection was seized as public property and the first iteration of the Louvre Museum we know and love was opened in 1793 on the anniversary of the end of the monarchy. Then, of course, Napoleon expanded the palace and the collections. As his army set about building an empire, the museum collection grew with every conquest of the Revolutionary Wars. The Egyptian Museum is now the Department of Egyptian Antiquities in the Soli Wing. It opened a little later, in 1823. This section and the Islamic Art Department on the lower floors of the Denon Wing open in 1920. These are both stunning collections that get less traffic than the most famous European paintings. My tip? Whip out your sketchbook, find a comfy seat and do a little sketching. No visit to the Louvre would be complete without visiting its backyard. But this isn't any old backyard. The Tuileries Gardens were designed by Louis XIV's landscape architect, André Le Nôtre, who was also behind the ornamental gardens in Versailles. There is an unofficial dog park right beside the Louvre. Watch the local Parisian pooches at play. Or grab one of the iconic green metal chairs that circle the fountains and enjoy the views of these incredible parks with elegant Parisian apartment buildings providing the backdrop. Les Passages Next, I want to show you one of my favorite hidden gems in Paris. Just promise that you'll keep it to yourself, okay? We're staying on the right bank and heading north to explore the enchanting network of covered passageways, or Les Passages de Paris. They were built in the 1800s as shopping arcades and were considered ultra-modern at the time. They were covered, they let women shop all year round even when the weather was bad and days short in winter, thanks to their central heating and gas lamps. In the mid-19th century, there were 150 of them tucked away in elaborate networks that stretched over different districts of Paris. These days, there are only 20 or so after the city was remodeled in the 1800s. 
You'll find almost all of them in this built-up area on the right bank. You can learn more about that in our architecture episode in this Paris guide. I'm a big fan of the pretty Passage du Grand Serre. Here, you will find cute cafes, an antique shop, artisan jewelry, and even a specialist knitting shop. But it's also a work of art in its own right. Soak in the gorgeous period features like the glass ceiling, ornate wooden storefronts, and fabulous tiled floors. I love ducking into these quaint, secluded corridors right in the hectic heart of town and suddenly feeling like I've gone back in time. With their retro decor and gorgeous long perspectives, the galleries are also a great place to do some casual sketching. Don't be embarrassed, this is Paris, and nobody will look twice if you whip out the sketchbook. The Picasso Museum. Let's hit the city's third arrondissement, Le Marais. This fashionable district stretches across the third and fourth arrondissement. Here, we're going to visit the museum dedicated to one man who, although he was Spanish by birth, would become one of the painters most associated with Paris. Pablo Picasso was an eclectic and creative artist, but also a serious networker and shrewd businessman, and a pretty appalling husband-slash-lover-slash-boyfriend on all accounts. When this young man arrived in the French capital in 1900, he started off as a textbook broke artist, living in Montmartre. But his singular talent quickly brought him success, fame and fortune. When he died, aged 91 in 1973, he left behind some 40,000 works if we include his ceramics, sketches and sketchbooks. Picasso managed to create a sensation around himself, even after he passed away, because he didn't leave a will to divide up his hugely valuable estate. It consisted of properties around the world, an impressive collection of gold, his own paintings, and the artwork of his fellow painters that he purchased in his lifetime. The result? It took six years to settle the fight between his family, wives, lovers, and the children he had with both. An official auditor estimated his net worth as somewhere between 100 and 250 million dollars, 530 million to 1.3 billion dollars in today's money. In the late 80s, Pablo's son, Claude, ruffled his family's feathers by selling the rights of his father's name and signature to car maker Citroën. The French car maker is said to have paid about 20 million for the deal. The Picasso Museum, in the heart of the Marais, was opened in 1985, but not after Picasso's family donated thousands of his works by way of payment for tax owed on his estate. In this impressive collection of pieces, you can trace the artist's evolution from his blue period to his bombastic cubist work. 
I always stop to contemplate the 1901 self-portrait from his blue period because it shows us the painter in his youth, right when he would have been living pretty humbly in Montmartre. His expression in the work is equal parts confidence and doubt. As we go through his works, we can see the artist many evolutions. The museum is housed in Hotel Salé, one of the many Hotel Particulier or former mansion houses in the Marais district. The nearby Musée Carnavalet and Museum of the Art and History of Judaism are also laid out in former mansion houses. Hi everyone, Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Le Centre Pompidou Let's continue across the Marais now by heading east along Rue des Francs-Bourgeois and emerging on the vast Place Beaubourg, right on the edge of Léal, the next district along. It's a scenic 10 minutes stroll to get to our next artistic landmark, the Pompidou Centre. You cannot miss it. It sticks out amid the elegant uniformity of the surrounding 19th century architecture. It caused quite the stir when it was inaugurated in the 1970s. We'll talk about that in our architecture episode in the Circa Guide to Paris. This huge art complex was built on the initiative of a French president called Georges Pompidou. The whole building was dedicated to modern art, with the idea it would keep France relevant as the center of the artistic world, a title it was ceding to New York at the time. While New York is still at the center of the global art scene, the adaptable modern space has definitely helped keep Paris on the art radar. Plenty of shows go from here to the Tate Modern in London and MoMA in New York, or else the other way round. And it's not just an art gallery, it's also a public reading library, a cinema and a music center. When the project was initiated, the French government held an international competition to see who would design the most interesting building. The winning design came from a pair of young and bold architects, Renzo Piano and Richard Rogers. The team has gone on to become world-famous architects. You might know the Shard in London or the modern wing piano created for the Art Institute of Chicago. And Richard Rogers designed London's Millennium Dome and the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. The Pompidou Centre was designed to show the inner workings of the building on the outside. You'll see different colored pipes running up and down its facade, almost like a huge game of snakes and ladders. Each primary color 
signifies a functional part of the building's infrastructure, water, electricity, and heating. It looks like a building turned inside out. A long zigzagging escalator inside one of these pipes takes you to the top level where a range of wonderful exhibitions await. Favorites from recent years include huge names like David Hockney and Georgia O'Keeffe. It's always an interesting curation and increasingly showcases diversity in art. The 2021 Women in Abstraction exhibition was a huge hit. At the top of the structure, you will also find a fancy bar and restaurant called Le Georges, named after Pompidou, of course. Here you can enjoy an incredible view over the Paris rooftops and the Eiffel Tower, and a pricey drink if you're in the need of a quick refuel. Back on the ground floor of the huge cultural center, don't miss the fabulous gift shop where you can take home posters to remind you of your artistic séjour in France. What I love about this museum is that it's not enclosed just within the structure's walls. The artistic and creative footprint spreads out all around the plaza in front of Plaza Stravinsky out on the side. The plaza takes the name of the famed Russian composer. Joyous sculptures from French sculptor Niki de Saint-Fal line the square. In the background, you will see a mural of Salvador Dali by legendary French street artist Jeff Aerosol. It's art on art on art and it will make your heart soar. The Place à Beaubourg, also known as Place Georges Pompidou, is also known for a different kind of artistic form, street performers. This could be singers, jugglers, and often, my personal favorite, mime artists. And this all sits together beautifully. In Paris, the main art forms are linked to each other. They are seen as different outlets for the same creative expression. Now, as I promised, a word on mime. For many, the first image that comes to mind when we think of a Frenchman is the skinny white-gloved mime artist. This poetic art form first hit these shores way back in the 1570s when the Italian Commedia dell'arte came to France and enjoyed instant success. It really became the distinctive style we know today in the 1800s when Jean-Gaspard Dubureau first put on white face paint to become Pierrot. Pierrot was also originally an Italian character. Le Théâtre des Funambules, or Theatre of Tightrope Walkers, where he performed is the setting of Les Enfants du Paradis, the tragically beautiful classic movie by Marcel Carnet. The film was produced in France during World War II and is set in 1830s Paris. It follows the tale of star-crossed lovers, both stars of the stage, whose love story takes place against the backdrop of the theatre. In the 20th century, the art of French mime came to global attention. A big driving force of this was the man born Marcel Mangel, who would become the legend Marcel Marceau with his iconic clown character. B. 
Habib. He was the son of Jewish immigrants from Poland and Ukraine. Born and raised in the industrial north of France, he fell in love with the art of mime when he watched a Charlie Chaplin movie at the age of five. He began to teach himself how to contort his body and expressions to convey meaning without words. His first performances were under sad circumstances, though. During World War II, when France was under Nazi control, Marceau worked in the Jewish-French resistance and used his physical comedy to keep younger children entertained and thus quiet as they fled to Switzerland. Perhaps these dramatic childhood experiences shaped the man and performer he would become. A man who could infuse both humor and the pain of the human condition into one short theatrical piece. We will link you to some of his most beautiful and poetic works in the show notes. Today, Paris remains the world capital of mime and physical theater, notably housing l'École internationale de théâtre Jacques Lecoq, Mime School, founded by the French actor and movement coach of the same name. Here, famous actors such as Sacha Baron Cohen learned the high art of clowning around. In fact, the Borat star described the school's master clown as the funniest man he's ever met. Actor Isla Fisher, who is married to Baron Cohen, also studied at Lecoq, as did Jeffrey Rush and Steven Burkhoff. But the art form is not frozen in time, far from it. Le Cirque de Demain, or the Circus of Tomorrow, is a kind of huge incubator for the circus arts designed to give opportunities to young circus performers. Each year, the organization hosts the Festival Mondial du Cirque de Demain, a world-beating festival showcasing acrobats, flying trapeze artists, clowns and jugglers from all around the world. Today, the French still have a penchant for slapstick and physical comedy, which explains one of the most successful English-language exports in France, Mr. Bean. The Filmothèque Next, we're heading to the area known as the Latin Quarter, an ancient part of Paris established by the Romans. Here, you'll be surrounded by the grand buildings of the Sorbonne University and the majestic Pantheon Monument. I could easily dedicate a whole episode to what we call the septième art, the seventh art, or cinema. Paris has been the backdrop of the movies of legendary directors from home, Jean Renoir, Marcel Carnet, François Truffaut, or Agnès Varda plus modern classics like Amélie and Ratatouille and famous films from abroad like Midnight in Paris, An American in Paris, or Before Sunset. There's no better place to pay homage to the Parisian silver screen than at the deliciously old-school Filmothèque du Quartier Latin. In this dinky independent cinema showing classic movies, they refuse to play advertisements at the top of the film. It's that kind of anti-establishment, intellectual type place. 
The two salles are named after screen legends, the Red Marilyn with 97 seats or the Blue Audrey with 60. Check the listings for films in version originale or VO to see the original English version rather than a dubbed French version. And a second secret tip, if you want to see French cinema with subtitles, look up Lost in Translation, a fabulous little startup aimed at English speakers in Paris that screens French films with English subtitles in indie cinemas and pop-up venues across the city. We'll link you to their program in the notes. Rue de Seine Next, we're staying on the south side of the Seine and shifting a little west to the neighboring 6 arrondissements. We're going to take a wander up Rue de Seine, where you will find a huge selection of private galleries displaying works from rare tribal art to Picasso sketches, as well as dealers of antique furniture and books. In fact, the little neighborhood around this street has the highest concentration of art galleries and antique dealers in the world. This is the southern end of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, a once bohemian quarter loved by artists and intellectuals that today skews a little more bobo. That means bourgeois bohème for your information, rather than straight-up bohemian. This road became iconic when Jacques Prévert wrote a poem taking its name and earned its place in the romantic artistic imagination. Begin at the Grand Dome Institut de France building on the Quai de Conti, right across from the Louvre. This structure and institution was established under the reign of Louis XIV with the aim of codifying French culture and setting it as a standard for the whole of Europe. Not so much has changed since the 1600s. The Académie Française is the council of the institute dedicated to the French language. They wear traditional green robes to perform their duties as gardens of the French language. One of their big jobs in recent decades has been to fight against the invasion of the English language. They present made-in-France alternatives to English terms like the web or email with only limited application in real life. In any French office, you will hear talk of a meeting, a call, a debrief, des KPI, and even a roadmap. Walking from the Seine River, turn right down to the Rue des Beaux-Arts, at the end of which you will find the highly prestigious École des Beaux-Arts, where famous artists like Claude Monet cut their teeth through a rigorous schedule of drawing and painting from observation. Today, it's still a center of excellence for the visual arts. Further up the street, don't miss the legendary Hôtel La Louisiane. From the outside, this might look like your average mid-range hotel, but this little spot is filled with artistic history. In the 50s and the 60s, this area became a hotbed for jazz clubs. Many of the jazz greats stayed here. Miles Davis, Bud Powell, Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, Billie Holiday, Lester Young, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane and Chet Baker. More about them in our jazz episode. <laughs> 
At that time, this hotel was the place to stay for artists and intellectuals. Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre stayed here. Today it's the favorite haunt of Quentin Tarantino, and he even named a bar in his movie Inglorious Bastards after it. Alors, don't you think it's just about time for a little apéro break? Rest your weary feet at La Palette, a classic Saint-Germain café. It's been popular with artists and intellectuals across generations, all the way up to today. We will leave you here to sip on a glass of something cold, people watch, and maybe even do some sketching, writing, music composition, or whatever takes your fancy. In part two of our artistic expedition around Paris, we'll be starting at the world-famous Musée d'Orsay in the 7th arrondissement. So we'll see you there. À toutes! Thanks for listening to part one of our series on art in Paris. Remember to queue up episode two, or you can listen to it straight away. And after that, check out the other Paris episodes in this guide for more dives into the city's food scene, the fascinating love story between Paris and jazz pioneers, and a closer look at the French aesthetic. Whether you're heading to Paris right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Rome, Iceland, New York, LA, and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it.